0: Welcome to the On Your Marks book review podcast with me, Jonathan Marks. Today I'll be sharing with you my review of the book Let There Be Water Israel's Solution for a Water Starved World, written by Seth Siegel. This book was published in 2015 and it's a reread for me. I recently returned from Israel having taken a group of my MBA students on a study tour in Tel Aviv and I thought this would be a worthwhile read while I was in the country. In many ways, the book is a kind of companion piece to the better-known book Startup Nation by Dan Sr. and Saul Singer. In fact, either of these books are a great read for those wanting to know more about how Israel punches so far above its weight when it comes to innovation and entrepreneurship. Let There Be Water is a careful and detailed chronicle of how Israel, from before its independence in May 1948, set out to strengthen the supply and management of water to, in the words of David Ben-Gurion, the iconic and enigmatic first prime minister of the country, make the desert bloom. The author Seth Siegel is something of an authority of water issues worldwide and brings a very varied lens to the study of Israel's water story. The book starts with some troubling statistics about global water issues, statistics that I'm sure many of us are aware of. We all know that water is a scarce and precious resource and most countries have faced a severe drought at some stage which has led to restricted use of water for consumers and for industry. Population growth, a rising middle class, pollution and climate change all directly impact the finite resource of water. But what is intriguing in the list that Siegel provides is that water leaks, for example, are a major problem when it comes to managing the water supply. This idea of water leaks alludes to how well a water system is managed by the local authority and is measured by the volume of water lost through leaks and burst pipes. London, for example, loses around 30% of its water to leaks. Chicago, about 25%. South Africa's statistics are, of course, troubling, and they vary across metros and municipal areas, but they have been recorded to be as much as 70 or even 80% in some areas meaning that between 7 and 8 litres of water literally go down the drain every day due to leaks and burst pipes. Although this data is somewhat sketchy, there is a very clear picture for all municipal areas that this management of leaks is a real problem. Of course, Israel does amazingly in the space, and their water losses are in the single digit, sometimes as low as 3%. The book takes the reader through a long journey from the time of British Mandate Palestine to the modern day, showing, to my mind, really three things. Firstly, how careful policy and strategy can indeed secure a country's water resource. Secondly, how innovation and a partnership between government, private sector investors, and of course the entrepreneurial class, can lead to incredible technology innovation to source and manage water. And then finally, interestingly, how water is indeed politicized, but also how it can lead to unity and even peace. I'll share a few stories from the book below that I thought were meaningful, well well, at least meaningful to me, and that I think illustrate some of the texture of the book itself. The author is super helpful in codifying the whole Israel strategy in the final chapter, and for the sake of completeness I'll share a few highlights from there as well. As Jews started resettling the land of what is today Israel, then British Mandate Palestine, there was resistance from the British to this migration, and one of the issues raised was the availability of water and the subsequent carrying capacity of the land to accommodate an influx of immigrants to an already water-stretched environment. The Jewish agency, essentially a kind of Israeli government-in-waiting, was not prepared to wait for the British to change their mind, and so they set out to show that not only was there sufficient water available, but that with careful management and stewardship there in fact would be an abundance of water to settle the land. At the same time as this was going on, the UN was busy surveying Palestine to decide how the land would be split into two states, one Arab and one Jewish. Ben-Gurion and the Jewish Agency hatched a plan that so beautifully illustrates this wonderful Jewish concept of chutzpah. To both populate the Negev Desert in the south and to make a strong claim for available land, the Jewish Agency decided on the following. On the night following Yom Kippur in 1946, the Zionist leadership set out with trucks under cover of darkness. It was a Saturday night and most British soldiers were out drinking, no surprise there. The trucks headed for the northern Negev Desert and working through the night built 11 small settlements. While British law prohibited the Jews from building any new farms or settlements, an older Ottoman law still in effect and predating the British conquest of Palestine held that no structure with a roof could be demolished unless it was a safety hazard. And so by the next morning, 11 settlements had been created and lo and behold, water was found in the desert and was piped to all the settlements. In a wonderfully ironic moment, the piping used to transport the water had in fact been bought from the British. These pipes were used to move water around London during the Blitz and after the war were sent for scrap. The Zionists heard about this high-quality metal pipe available, bought them and transported them quietly to Palestine and deployed them to prove to the Brits themselves that there was enough water for increased Jewish immigration. This little plan was enough to convince the U.S. inspectors who awarded the Negev Desert to the new Jewish state at the time of of partition. Once the water system was in place and being well managed, the focus now turned to innovation. One of the fathers of the Israel National Water Carrier System, Simcha Blas, had noticed in the early 1930s on a visit to a kibbutz that one tree in a row of trees seemed to be growing taller than the others. On careful inspection, he noticed a small hairline crack in the metal irrigation piping that was feeding the tree with a small but constant supply of water. He thought nothing more of it, but in the late 1950s, he returned to the idea and started to experiment with drip irrigation. Up until then, crops had either been irrigated using flood irrigation, essentially flooding the field with large amounts of water, and hoping that enough was absorbed into the soil and ultimately fed the roots, or through sprinkler irrigation, which while more effective, still resulted in water being lost through wind and evaporation. Drip irrigation, on the other hand, fed water drop by drop at the root system of the plant, meaning that nothing was lost and the usage of water became that much more efficient. This led to the creation of Netafem, probably Israel's most well-known water tech export. The vast majority of crops in Israel still use this technology, and it's been exported around the world. As Blas couldn't keep up with the demand, he partnered with a local kibbutz, who became the manufacturer of the product. They too struggled to meet demand, and being built on a socialist model of governance, they gave a portion of their equity to a neighboring kibbutz as their new manufacturing partner. Apart from Blas, who held some equity and a royalty, none of the individuals in the kibbutzim who owned the Netafim product benefited personally from what became ultimately a multi-billion dollar product. And so the book continues with one story after the next about how this country found ever more increasingly clever ways of building smart tech and innovative products to save water and also to reclaim water, even from raw sewage, in order to be reused in the national water system. The net result was astounding in that Israel had gone from being a water-starved country to becoming a water exporter to its neighbours and is in fact the only country in the world to have less desert now than when it started 75 years ago. This took careful planning and steady management, and in the book the author says that water problems are a proxy for bad governance overall. I think this could be found to be true, especially in South Africa, which has an abundance of water, and yet we still find problems across the country when it comes to management of this precious resource. Siegel lists several strategies that Israel employed, and I've provided five here that I thought really jumped out for me. The first is, water belongs to the nation. The Water Act passed early in Israel's history transferred ownership of all water to the people. This even includes rainwater collected from one's house. In this way, I think Israel signaled that this is a resource for everyone, and this removes any fighting over ownership between private parties. Of course, what is needed is good governance, free of influence and beyond reproach. Secondly, cheap water is expensive water. Most consumers around the world don't pay the real cost of water, or worse, the regulator or municipal authority is not even able to calculate the real cost and pass that on. So this creates a false economy around water. Israel decided early on that the prices for water and sewage would be set at real prices, and this subsequently became the most important mechanism to reduce consumption and ultimately conserve water. Number three, use water fees for water. Israel created several water utilities around the country that took over management of water from the more politically oriented city hall. These utilities were linked to the National Water Authority and required to meet certain service standards regarding leak management and other measures to control and manage water. As consumers paid real prices for water, all this money, and I mean all this money, was spent on the water system only, and not used to cross-subsidise other politically interesting projects and initiatives. This meant that the water system was always well-maintained, and that there was always sufficient money available for ongoing investment. Number four, innovation. Drawing, of course, on the culture of innovation and entrepreneurship in the country, Israel pulled on the private sector to help drive innovation. This is unique given that water management is firmly in the hands of technocrats, but government policy was always encouraging of innovation and entrepreneurship and a combination of public and private partnerships. In the early days of Israel, the kibbutz movement, of course, played a very big role in this, given its role in the Israeli agricultural sector. But later on, public and private universities became a hotbed of innovation and technology development, specifically in the water and sewerage management space. And then finally, number five, create a water-respecting culture. So the role of the consumer becomes profoundly important. Water is seen as precious and owned by all, and this understanding starts when children are small in grade school. There's high compliance across the country with water saving during times of drought, and there's a kind of we're all in this together mentality across the country. And even though Israel is often seen as deeply politically and socially divided, there was definitely a sense of coming together around water. The book ends with a lovely quote from a senior official at the Israeli Water Authority, and in it he says, and I quote, If there is an important lesson for others from the Israel experience, it is not to wait until all the answers are in. We figure things out well enough to start, and we go into each project knowing that it won't be perfect. It doesn't have to be, because we know we can fix it along the way. End quote. I can't think of a better endorsement for this iterative approach to innovation, water or otherwise. By the way, this podcast is number 42, leaving me with only 10 books left for the year. Wow, what an amazing journey this has been, and I really want to thank you all for the support and interest and feedback along the way. From next week, I'll be sharing a way that you can support my 52 book project. I've partnered with one of my students who is trying to establish a mobile library And I would love it if my work here would encourage you to support her and her work. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This really is a wonderful book, inspiring and interesting. And given that water is used by all of us, I think it's helpful to know how we can manage this better in a potentially water uncertain future. In the week ahead, I'm reading the book How I Built This by Guy Raz. This is a book based on his very successful NPR podcast, And it's filled with priceless advice from the world's top entrepreneurs. So please do look out for that next Tuesday. And for the rest, I hope you have an absolutely wonderful week ahead.